Hello and welcome to Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. One could say my middle name is Music. Well, actually my middle name is David. Only close friends and family members know what my first name is and I don't plan to mention it right now. Not that I'm embarrassed of it, it's just... Anyhow, I got a good mixed bag for you today. So we're going to jump right in. There is no need to do a lot of talking. Some pieces of music deserve great explanation. Others need really very little explanation. They should speak for themselves. These uh, four scherzi by Friedrich Chopin is a case in point. They can't speak for themselves. They were composed between 1831 and 1842 and are amongst the most popular of Chopin's piano music. It's said that many composers composed piano music, whereas other composers composed music for the piano. Chopin could be considered a composer of piano music. He certainly loved to show off not only technical ability, but more important actually to Chopin was lyricism and melody, which is why it's piano music, music specifically meant to showcase the instrument as opposed to music for piano. As I said, these four scherzi are very popular. They weren't necessarily meant to be played as a group, but they certainly work that way, and a lot of pianists have done so. They are in the characteristic scherzo form of uh, what one called ternary form, that is an A section, a B section in contrast, and then back to the A section. They do display virtuosity, although they are very fun to play. They do fall well under the fingers if you're a competent enough pianist. The first one is very famous because its B section is um, a statement of the very famous traditional Polish Christmas carol, or koledi as they're known in Polish, Sleep Little Jesus, or Lulaj Jezunio. So listen for that. It's got a wonderful uh, church bell effect that accompanies it as well. The other three are quite interesting in their own uh, respect. Don't really need to explain them much. Just listen to them. They're they're quite gorgeous. The keys that they are in, the first one is in B minor. It also it bears the opus number 20. The second in B flat minor, opus 31. The third in C sharp minor, opus 39. And the fourth, which is probably the most jovial of the four, scherzi were meant to be jovial. I think they're all rather light anyhow in their own respect. Light is not a, um, a dismissive term. It means that uh, it is of a certain humor and humor doesn't always have to be funny. Anyhow, number four is an E major, and it's opus 54. The pianist we're going to hear play them is one of my favorite Chopin pianists, Ivan Moravitz. He is, uh, this Czech pianist is definitely within my top three favorite Chopin performers, and the first two don't count. So without any further delay, here are the four scherzi of Friedrich Chopin as performed by Ivan Moravitz.
The always delightful, intense, whimsical, melodic, always enjoyable, Four Scherzi of Friedrich Chopin. We heard them performed by the great Czech pianist Ivan Moravec, whom I mentioned earlier, is most likely my favorite Chopin interpreter, and perhaps you can understand why. Moravec has a very delicate tone that is does not mean he can't play bombastically. What it does mean is he loves and cherishes and is very good with the intimate sound, the sort of sound you would get from a small concert hall or a salon, which is very much uh, apropos for performing Chopin. You should hear Moravitz's Mozart as well. It's absolutely poetic. Great pianist and a great performance of the four Chopin scherzi. So, where do we go now? Well, how about to some Carl Maria von Weber, a composer I'm quite fond of. 
Carl Maria von Weber was almost a contemporary of Chopin, somewhat earlier. Um, they both fit the Biedermeier milieu of the time. That's a generic term, uh, long in explanation where the word comes from, but nevertheless, it's a term that was coined to reflect the cultural, um, the cultural appearance of a very well-to-do middle class. And certainly the music of Weber and Chopin appealed to the up-and-coming middle class, not only as music to listen to, but music to perform. There was more uh, performing of music in a household well before the days of radio and uh, recordings, which we can argue kind of killed the uh, impetus for performing music at home. Nevertheless, in 1815, Weber was staying with a clarinetist friend of his, one Heinrich Bermann, and for Behrmann, he composed two movements of a work that would eventually have three movements that was premiered in a concert to commemorate the success of the Battle of Waterloo of that year. Quite often, battles do generate a compositional creativity amongst composers. In this case, it was probably necessary because the defeat of Napoleon was essential for the survival of Europe. That was in June 1815. A year later, Weber composed another movement and made it the first movement of what would become a three-movement work that would be titled the Grand Duo Concertant. The reason why he gave it that title was to indicate that the piano was just as important as the solo clarinet. Now, that was already happening in pianos, in sonatas in general, uh, sonatas with other instruments. Um, gone were the days where a sonata would be considered a sonata for piano with violin accompaniment. Around the time of Mozart and Beethoven, solo instruments started gaining more importance in these uh, sonatas for more than one instrument. Certainly, uh, this Weber is a good example of that, and most likely why he called it the Grand Duo Concertant. It's a fun work in three movements. Uh, the three movements are Allegro con Fuoco, a charming andante con moto, and the final rondo allegro, which bears some striking similarity to Weber's opera Der Freischutz. Those who know the work will understand what I mean when they hear a certain section of this work. It's going to be performed for us on period instruments, in other words, instruments from the time of, of Weber to give that authentic sound. It will be performed by the clarinetist Eric Huprich, and he is accompanied by forte pianist Melvin Tan.
Maria von Weber's delightful Grand Duo Contratant, Opus 48, composed in 1815 and 16. We heard it there performed by Eric Hüprich, a clarinet, and Melvin Tan on a forte piano. Delightful music. Again, it represents a style of playing, a style of music composition that in many ways epitomizes the advent of middle-class culture that had very little cares or worries in society. This was known as Biedermeier in the German-speaking countries. Almost became a term of derision for uh, many reasons. However, uh, the art that appeared at this period, including um, furniture and architecture, uh, is quite beautiful. It's beauty for beauty's sake. Again, it reflects very little worries or cares about the problems of the world. That's an indulgence that most people still at this time and for a long time to come did not have the pleasure of engaging in. Life for a majority of people in Europe and elsewhere was still rough and difficult and even sad. Oh 
a version of a very famous Appalachian folk tune, Lonesome Day, performed there by the bluegrass duo, the Osborne Brothers. This was, as I said, a very well-known Appalachian tune that has its origins, most likely in folk music, a folk tune from England. Very, very popular uh, melody. 12-bar blues form that definitely reflects the harshness of life in Appalachia. It was a hard life. Now, wouldn't I uh, wouldn't accuse bluegrass music of losing its touch with that sort of aspect of life, but I would say that modern country music has a lot in common with Biedermeyer, even if adherents to that music wouldn't understand the term. I didn't mean to be that uh, derisive. Yes, I did. I, I tease. But nevertheless, I feel the main problem with modern country is its lack of vision, the way country music used to have. Now, there are adherents who are going to poo-poo my comment there, but I'm sorry, there's got to be more than just uh, drinking beer, torn blue jeans, your hat, your boots, and uh, that pickup truck of yours. Bit of a stereotype? Maybe. Now, on the one hand, there's feeling sorry for yourself, and then there's feeling sorry for yourself. Black cats creep across my path Until I'm almost mad I must have roused the devil's wrath Cause all my luck is bad I make a date for golf And you can bet your life it rains I try to give a party But the guy upstairs complains I guess I'll go through life Just catching colds and missing trains Everything happens to me I never miss a thing I've had the measles and the mumps And every time I play an ace My partner always trumps I guess I'm just a fool Who never looks before he jumps Everything happens to me At first my heart thought you could break this jinx for me That love would turn the trick to end despair But now I just can't fool this head that thinks for me so I've mortgaged all my castles in the air I've telegraphed and phoned Sent an airmail special to Your answer was goodbye There was even postage due I fell in love just once And then it had to be with you Everything happens to me 
I've never drawn a sweepstake or a bank night at a show. I thought perhaps this time I'd won, but Lady Luck said no. And though it breaks my heart, I'm not surprised to see you go. Everything happens to me. Sinatra with Tommy Dorsey and his orchestra and everything happens to me. Poor guy. Definitely in that feeling of nobody likes me, everybody hates me, I'm going down the garden to eat worms. Long, thin, slimy ones, short, fat, fuzzy ones, ooey, gooey, ooey, gooey worms. Come on, buck up, Frank. Life's more cheerful than that. You need some sunshine in your life. <laughs> Constant things of the rising sun. Yeah. 
sunshine and happiness right there that was british group medicine head and their 1973 hit rising sun i'm kind of miffed that in 1973 i never came across this tune or if i did i didn't pay much attention to it because it's pure joy anyhow i did eventually get to know it and i've just shared it with you and i hope you found that lovely and uplifting it's a great piece Although they had a modest success, Medicine Head is unfortunately best known as a footnote in rock history for an unfortunate coincidence. They were going to come out with an album that they were going to entitle and didn't title Dark Side of the Moon. Problem is, so did Pink Floyd. Can imagine if the members of each group got together and talked about what they were working on? You can just imagine them going, hey, I'm coming out with an album called Dark Side of the Moon. Oi, we're coming out with an album called Dark Side of the Moon. Awkward. Nevertheless, uh, Pink Floyd's release was going to be somewhat later. It wasn't ready for production when um, Medicine had issued their recording. Pink Floyd was tempted to change the name of their album, but they wanted to see how Medicine, had, Medicine Head's album did before doing so. Unfortunately, it did not do very well. Not that it's a bad album. Medicine Head just didn't have the pull. Very good band. Really, really good band. But as you, as we know in rock history, Pink Floyd kept the title Dark Side of the Moon, and that's what people think of when they hear that title. But as I said, Medicine Head had a respectable following. They issued about five or six discs, and they're well worth investigating. More sunshine and joy, I would say. Now with music by the Spanish composer Joaquin Rodrigo. Now, when you hear that name, you might think of his Concierto de Aranjuez, the great guitar concerto that he composed, which, by the way, nobody wanted to publish when he composed it. They didn't think it was a good piece, so he published it himself. That turned out to be fortuitous for Joaquin Rodrigo because... The popularity of the work became such, made him a wealthy man, and he got to claim every single dollar, penny, whatever currency you want for that great concerto. Now, as great a work as it is, it's not my favorite of Rodrigo. I love it, but I have a work that I like even more. It's his Concierto Serenata for Harp and Orchestra, which he composed in 1952 for the harpist Nicanor Zabaleta. It's a delightful work in three movements. Gentle work, very, very gentle work. Um, three movements are quite joyful. As I said, it's a joyful work. The first movement, an estudiantina, or a study. Well, it's not really a study. That name means student as well. And it's invoking the ebullience and, uh, I wouldn't say frivolity, but definitely the joie de vivre of young people going to university 
in Madrid or Seville or somewhere, some such place. It has about as much rhythmic drive as the Medicine Head tune we heard. It's a delightful movement. It's my favorite of the three, but I love all three movements. The second movement is an intermezzo, one of the most delicate things I've ever heard written for harp and with orchestra. It's in canonic form. Think of Row, Row, Row Your Boat and you'll know what I mean. And the final movement, entitled Sarao, which is evening, is a wonderful sprightly Spanish dance type movement with the uh, tempo marking Allegro de Chizo. The famous recording of this work was, was done by Nicanor Zabaleta. Um, it was recorded uh, many years after the work was premiered in 1956, even though the work was composed in 1952, as I said. Uh, the famous recording that uh, Zabaleta did for Deutsche Grammophon was with the, or is with the Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Ernst Merzendorfer. So let's listen to this recording of the great Concierto Serenata for Harp and Orchestra by Joaquin Rodrigo. <laughs> Thank you. 
Nicanor Zabaleta with the Berlin Radio Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Ernst Merzendorfer performed a work composed for Nicanor Zabaleta by Joaquin Rodrigo, the Concierto Serenata for Harp and Orchestra. Memory is an interesting thing, isn't it? Uh, even though this work is subtitled a serenade, and serenades are usually associated with evening adventures, that's not how I think of the work. When I first heard it as a young lad, it was in the middle of summer on a very gorgeous sunny day, which meant no school. So, of course, I associate that work with that time and the happiness thereof. And it's a very happy work. Now, on a little more serious side, a work composed quite earlier, although quite different in um, approach to uh, music writing, we're now going back to approximately 1914 and a composition by Alban Berg, who is one of the three names associated with the New Vienna School of Composition. Some considered dissonant, others considered atonal. That's probably more like it. Still gorgeous music, if you ask me. In 1914, 
he began work on a piece of music that was to be dedicated to his composer, teacher, and friend, Arnold Schoenberg, the man who invented, essentially, the New Vienna School of Composition. This was in celebration of his 40th birthday in September 1914. Man, Schoenberg's birthdays must have been incredible cerebral events because this piece of music we're going to hear, the three pieces for orchestra, is quite, quite intense. I mean, goodness, did they not have Zachertort or Kirsch to uh, enjoy while they were celebrating his birthday? Anyhow, the work was meant to be uh, performed for uh, the celebration of Schoenberg's 40th birthday, but the second movement of the three was not finished until the following summer. And because of that, the war intervened and economic conditions were not great. Um, two movements of the work, the, the two that were completed, were not performed until 1923 and under the direction of the third famous name of uh, the school, Anton von Weber. The first complete performance didn't take place until 1930. So that's a pretty late birthday gift, if you ask me. The three pieces for orchestra are quite dense in their orchestration. Not that everything is heard all at once. Um, this is the genius of Berg and his ability to orchestrate. His orchestrations of whether it's his operas or other orchestral works or chamber music are, are quite ingenious. This orchestration calls for woodwinds in fours plus a bass clarinet, six horns, four trumpets, four trombones, a tuba, a whole bunch of percussion instruments, two harps, celesta, and strings. Quite a dense work. It actually uh, is similar to the orchestration of his opera um, Wozzeck. So if you're familiar with the orchestration of that great work, this, uh, this will sound quite similar in that respect. The first movement is a prelude, and it begins and ends with the percussion ensemble, so it has a bit of a ternary effect. The third movement, the second movement, excuse me, don't want to jump ahead. <laughs> I probably got in my head that the second movement was incomplete. It's complete for this recording. Yeah, the second movement is a round dance. It's sort of in the spirit of a landler. And the final movement is a march, and it's actually in sonatina-like form, so... Um, it's, it's small in scale, but big in stature. This recording is a famous recording for the uh, Mercury label under their Living Presence series. This series of uh, great classical recordings was actually engineered and produced by Wilma Cozart Fine. Yes, a female. Still, in this day and age, unusual in the recording industry to find a female behind the controls of a soundboard, and that's rather unfortunate, but she was a genius. Uh, the sound recording of these uh, famous Mercury Living Presence discs are well sought after by collectors, vinyl especially, and some of the original vinyl pressings fetch hundreds if not thousands of dollars from the used market. The CD transfers were also over, uh, overseen by Wilma Cozart Fine in the 90s, and of course, that's what we're going to listen to. The original recording was made in 1962, and it features the London Symphony Orchestra under Antal Dorati. So here we have Alban Berg's Three Pieces for Orchestra, Opus 6.
a sonically spectacular performance and recording of Alban Berg's Three Pieces for Orchestra, Opus 6. It was performed by the London Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Antal Dorati. What a spectacular sound, and never mind this multi-tracking nonsense. It was all picked up with only three microphones, three Telefunken 201s, and you still got a full-blooded sound there. Nothing like simplicity. You'd think that you'd want more complex miking for an orchestra? Nope. Just need a left and a right and something possibly to fill in for the ambience of the hall. I'm assuming that's what it was done. I could be wrong because Wilma Cozart knows her stuff, but that's all you need for a spectacular sound, if you ask me. Let's finish with an overture. Usually you open with an overture, but this is a different situation uh, with regarding this overture. And anyhow, I want to do what I want to do. Let's brighten up the mood again a little bit as, uh, as we end this podcast with the third of the four overtures Beethoven composed for his opera, operas, Lenora or Fidelio. Let's see, Fidelio, is it like Leonora or is it not? Are they the same opera? Are they two operas? That's still up for debate. One could say that uh, Leonora is Fidelio version 1.0, or if you look at Fidelio, you could consider it Lenora version 3.0. Okay, a little bit of the history, that sounds confusing. Beethoven initially composed an opera titled Leonora. I won't get into the background of it, about uh, the generation of this great story in opera, but the original opera was composed in 1805. It was in three acts, but it wasn't very successful. Not entirely Beethoven's fault. When it was premiered, Vienna had just been invaded by that horrible person, Napoleon. And so the audience was filled with very disinterested French officers who were more interested in waving their private parts. Okay, that's an anachronism, I know. But that's what happened. They were not interested in the opera and it failed. On top of that, Beethoven was con convinced by some that it was too long. Trim the opera from three acts to two. That became the second version of Lenore, presented the next year. It too didn't do so well. Beethoven shelved it, kept working on it, and in 1814 produced his final version, and he retitled it Fidelio, after the pseudonym, uh, the nom de plume, yeah, the pseudonym of the main character who uh, assumed an identity in order, this is Leonora, by the way, in order to gain access to her falsely imprisoned husband. So she disguised herself as a man, became known as Fidelio. Those who know the story know the story. As I said, Beethoven wrote four overtures in total for this work. The first one he dismissed uh, automatically. He felt it wasn't uh, suitable for the opera, although not a bad overture. The second Leonora overture has more meat to it, but many consider it to be a bit too heavy. It, it does use themes from the opera, but many consider it too heavy for the opening section of the opera, which is actually quite uh, light in spirit. There's a little bit of a flirtatious uh, event going on with some minor characters in it. So Beethoven then composed the third version based on the second version. It was even longer, so that didn't do so well. Finally, the fourth overture, which is known as Fidelio Overture, became the work associated with the opera, and the other three overtures are better known in concert versions. We're going to hear number three. Interestingly, 
Gustav Mahler instituted a tradition with this overture. It hasn't been carried on, but it was an interesting tradition of inserting it into the opera Fidelio between the last two scenes of the opera. And the reason why he did that is because stagehands had a hell of a time trying to uh, change a drastic change in set from uh, a very dungy prison cell to uh, an open courtyard. They needed time to change the set. Uh, being a 15-minute overture, Mahler thought that this gave them enough time to do so. And normally I disapprove of such fiddling with uh, composers' intentions. But in this case, it actually makes a bit of sense because at this point, the audience can be reminded of the drama that had just preceded with the them thematic ideas that appear in the overture. So it keeps them, keeps them engaged and fits in quite nicely with the final scene. It's not done that much anymore because not all sets are that complex to change. Uh, depends on the simplicity of, of the staging, but uh, also the technological advances in staging have sort of um, relegated that tradition uh, redundant. Anyhow, the overture, the third overture, is fantastic. It's a great way to end a show, and we will hear it now performed by the Cleveland Orchestra under the direction of Christoph von Dohnanyi.
a truly rousing performance of the third Leonora Overture by Ludwig van Beethoven, performed by the Cleveland Orchestra under the direction of Christoph von Dochnani. Well, like the Weber we heard, the final version of Fidelio, dated from 1814-1815, I'd say that Beethoven, with such a politically charged opera, the story is quite politically charged, a, it was actually banned in Czechoslovakia during the Soviet era. With such uh, political considerations, um, Beethoven certainly thumbed his nose at any Biedermeier sentiment. Well, mm, that was a delicious program, if you ask me. It certainly satisfied a lot of my happy taste buds. I think after this, when we're all through and done today, I'm going to go have some ice cream. Chocolate, of course. Maybe mint. I haven't decided yet. I know I'll have ice cream. I don't know what you'll have on your way home or when you get home. <laughs> Figuratively, I assume that you're in your homes listening to this. Oh, you could be in a car. You could be anywhere. But nevertheless, you were visiting Dave's Music Room. I'm David Kavlovic. Until next time, thank you for listening. <laughs>